really the first thing that I noticed was the strange breakdown of the court. Totally weird, fractured. Yeah, yeah, so strange. And for any court watcher, they've got to look at that breakdown and say, what, what happened there? Welcome to the latest episode and an emergency episode of the Mince Levin IP podcast, Exclusive Rights. I'm Drew DeVogue, a partner at Mince. I'm joined by Dan Wanger, also a partner. And we hopped on to spin this evening, June 22nd, 2021. Yesterday, the Supreme Court issued in one of its final opinions of this year's term, the highly anticipated decision in the Arthrex case. The upshot is that a Roberts Penn's majority opinion concluded that a portion of the America Invents Act is unconstitutional insofar as it granted unreviewable authority to certain administrative patent judges or APJs at the Patent Trial and Appeals Board. This affirmed the Federal Circuit's prior holding that the statutory framework I just mentioned violated the appointments clause of the United States Constitution. But this this was, a, as I noted, a, a highly anticipated opinion. Practitioners, commentators, observers have been waiting for this for a number of years, actually, given the constitutional implications here. So, Dan, what's the first knee-jerk reaction you had to seeing this opinion drop? Yeah, it's such a strange set of facts. And a, a str- really, the first thing that I noticed was the strange breakdown of the court. Totally weird, fractured opinion. Yeah, yeah, so strange. And for any court watcher, they've got to look at that breakdown and say, what what happened there? You got a five-judge agreement that there was the constitutional problem. And then only four judges from that five agree with the remedy and how to fix it. And then you had a judge who dissented, Breyer, who dissented from the majority opinion that there was actually something wrong, come in and swoop in and agree with the remedy. And then you've got Thomas joining with Breyer, Kagan, Sotomayor on the dissent, which is a set of strange bedfellows there. But my big takeaway, despite the breakdown being really strange, is that the court clearly identified correctly that these are principal officers who were not correctly appointed by the president and confirmed by the Senate. And then- Because they had unreviewable authority to kill property rights. That's the nub of it. Yeah. And like when the industry, I think, was looking at this court case uh, progressing through the ranks, we're like, yeah, that's a good argument. But we weren't confident they were going to solve the problem in the correct way. And that's exactly what they did. They, well, not they got, even, the, they not got even, the problem right and they punted on the resolution. We weren't even sure if, if traction would be gained at the high court, right? Let alone providing any remedy with teeth. Uh, but to that Yeah, that's point, fair. But, but when the Federal Circuit found that, that in the Federal Circuit case, when they found that there was an appointments clause problem, I think the only reason the court takes that up is to, is to affirm it. You know, Federal Circuit had carved out bad solution to the problem also. And then, so when I saw the court take it up, I, I felt pretty confident that they were going to also find an appointments clause problem, but I had no confidence that there would be any sort of consensus on what the correct way to resolve that conflict was, because the notion that you were going to tear down the whole IPR structure as without making a judgment on whether or not that's the right thing to do or not, or that the law is good or bad, I, I'm not making a judgment on that. It just seemed like a tall ask for the court. Yeah, absolutely. I I also think one way to view it, to your point about the federal circuit, which has exclusive jurisdiction over things patent specific, if they identified what they viewed 
as a constitutional issue. One way to see it is that it was almost a certainty that the Supreme Court was going to take up the Federal Circuit's invitation to review it. They almost had to. They almost had to. Right. On the remedy piece, though, when you were talking about the the fractured nature of the decision, you failed to mention the cheese standing alone, and that is Justice Gorsuch, who argued that, hey, you found that a portion of this statute violates the Constitution. The appropriate remedy is not to engage in half measures, but to send it back to Congress to, to solve what he called a, a policy choice. And, and one of the options he offered was to potentially, and I'm quoting here, reassign the power to cancel patents back to the judiciary where it resided for nearly two centuries. You know, yeah, I, I, highlight, I highlighted that also. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. yeah, you know, it's just a strange juxtaposition when you look at, uh, first of all, the, the Gorsuch decision that you were just talking about. That's going to be cited by patent practitioners and in, in briefs forever. It's just whether or not, like I said, I don't want, I'm not taking a value judgment or a policy position. But his issue, I think, is not specifically with the patent framework, but rather the broader administrative state. Sure, that's absolutely right. It, we, this is a very important part of the administrative state, the United States Patent Office. You know, it's in the Constitution. You know, this isn't like just some statutory creature that we're talking about when we're talking about patents. I mean, it goes back. There's Federalist articles about you know making sure that we codify patents. So, I, I mean, I don't necessarily want to get into an argument about the Federalist Papers, but I, I just want to juxtapose a comment in the Roberts, the majority decision, where he talks about. Quote, the parties are left with neither an impartial decision by a panel of experts nor a transparent decision for which a politically accountable officer must take responsibility, right? And that, end quote. And so that's the exact problem that was correctly identified by the court, I think, when we talk about APJs. And then Gorsuch, in his decision... I know exactly the the quote you're going to read, and I love it. I mean, on page five of the slip, he talks about all these things the court could have done in order to solve that problem, they could have, one could choose as the court does and make PTAB decisions subject to review of the director. That's one thing they could have done. Separately, one could specify that PTAB panel members should be appointed by the president and confirmed by the Senate, et cetera. He gives all these different options. And when the court is confronted with a circumstance where they have to choose between these different policy considerations, how are they making a policy decision? That That's not for them to do. That was for an opportunity for the court to kick it back to Congress and say, fix the problem. Well, so you're putting your finger right on what we were speaking about before we we hit record. And that is, there are many aspects of this opinion that get to the, the heart of the separation of powers concept that underlies pretty much all of our politic, sociopolitical legal structure in this country. And it's interesting to me, at least, that it took a case related to these sort of Byzantine administrative patent laws to tease this out in in the way that they did. I'll say, I thought you were taking us to Gorsuch's description of the prior unconstitutional framework, and that's on page four of his opinion where he says under this statutory <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, sorry <laughs> quote, under this statutory arrangement APJs are executive officers accountable to no one else in the executive branch a panel of bureaucrats wields unreviewable power 
to take vested property rights. This design may hold its advantages for some. Period. I've also got that highlighted, as you can see on the screen. Yeah. <laughs> I see that. Yeah. So I agree with you 100%. This Gorsuch opinion is one for the ages, but it's really teed up by the tensions that the Roberts forms majority uh, really sets up in the majority opinion. I guess personally, and, you know, again, no, no value judgment or other opinions for clients or, or the firm for which we work. But I was a little disappointed that, that they didn't go a bit farther with respect to the remedy. Well, yeah, look, right. We can, us two attorneys talking about it right now. We, we, we have clients on both sides of the V yeah. and there's no rehearing this case. You know, this is now the law of the land and I can disagree with these incredibly intelligent who, who are justices who are, way smarter than I am and got where they are because they're they're that good. So this is the law of the land and, and we're going to apply it the best that we can and the lawyers will practice under it. But I, I can't help but agree that there was, I feel a little unsatisfied with the outcome because at the end of the day, they've created a, a structure that Congress didn't intend, first of all. But now that the remedy is, is just that the the loser has to have an opportunity to ask the director for rehearing. I mean, in reality, when in practical application of this, is, is the director actually going to do anything other than rubber stamp decisions that came out of the PTAB? I, I don't know. And we'll all be left to be seen, of course, and I can't predict the future. But certainly, that's a fear that I have. Whether you're talking about winning as a petitioner or losing or losing as a petitioner, the meaningful review, the ability to actually get some sort of oversight to, to inferior officers is the whole point of the appointments clause in the first place. That's exactly right. And at the risk of deploying both Latin and Greek terms, this really is the sine qua non of a Pyrrhic victory, right? The patent holder persuaded the Supreme Court that there was a constitutional infirmity with the way Congress set up this framework. And the remedy is, okay, you get to go back to another government bureaucrat and ask for a rehearing, which in practice, it doesn't matter which side of the V you're on, patent holder or patent challenger, a rehearing is effectively impossible to get. Now, I don't know whether the PTO is going to put some teeth into this in some meaningful way, but just sitting here with the opinion that's you know 36 hours old, I'm interested to, to see whether there is going to be any teeth put behind this because I, I don't I don't see it. Yeah, look, I'll give everybody the benefit of the doubt and see what happens. Justice Gorsuch has a great sequence on page 10 of the slip where he talks about all of the problems, or not all, but some of the problems that have been identified in the amicus, amici, about complaints that people have uh, about the current structure. And one of them is just a staggering it's amazing, and I didn't know this before I read the before I read the opinion. But there was a private lawyer working at a company, became an APJ, adjudicated dozens of cases for the company he used to work for, has a near unanimous one hundred percent victory rate for that company, and then goes back to the company after he leaves the being an APJ. Like we can't have that kind of structure, and say that 
and tell people to have confidence in the system if that's the kind of outcomes we're going to have. Even if every one of those circumstances were 99% in favor of his prior employer, that appearance of impropriety it just can't be countenanced. I mean, how is the director not stepping in and saying you can't adjudicate these cases? I mean, right. yeah. So the upshot here, I think, for me, is big time case with serious implications in separation of powers issues. Implicates potential Chevron deference administrative process issues. And then, you know, gets into the nitty gritty of patent rights. And what is the system to do with the AIA? And we're now almost a decade out and the courts are still still trying to figure out how best to implement it. Yeah. I, one thing that I know for sure is that this case is not going to end the challenges to the AIA. So that's going to keep, people are going to find creative ways to to keep coming at it and not to harp in on a dissent, well, a partial dissent anyway, agreeing in the in the constitutional problem, but dissenting in the remedy. Judge Gorsuch knows this because he he recognized that this is going to keep happening. And his last line is, I think, is going to prove to be, you know, very telling. He says, quote, I hope this court will come to recognize what was evident for so much of our history, that the process due someone with a vested property right in a patent is a proceeding before a neutral and independent judge, end quote. And right now they're not they're not necessarily getting that. Right. Well, and to bookend it, again, Gorsuch's opening sentence, he says, for most of this nation's history, an issued patent was considered a vested property right that could be taken from an individual only through a lawful process before a court. And so I think he concludes to say, all right, so we're, we have put an administrative overlay onto that process. So there is another acceptable means by which an issued patent that is a vested property right that can be taken from an individual. So it's either through a court or through an administrative body. But he says, you've got to get the administrative process right. Yeah. Yeah. And we'll see what happens. Yeah. I think I think with that, we can leave it there. A lot more to come, obviously, as we see the implications of this uh, case play out over the coming months and years. But thanks for joining another episode, a bat signal episode of the Exclusive Min- Rights IP podcast. Right. I almost forgot the, the name <laughs> of our own podcast. Thanks for joining. Thanks.